0: And if you're joining us for the first time or just needing a little reminder today, this series in Ephesians that we've just recently begun is all about looking at the church. Why? Because, as we learned in week number one, the church is what God is doing in the world. The church is the instrument He's chosen to extend His grace and make for peace in a world that is broken. And in week number two, we considered that. As wonderful as the church is, given the amazing role she has to play in God's plan, what's most amazing about her isn't anything actually to do with her. Instead, the church is marvelous because God is marvelous. And the greatness and glory of God are most wonderfully revealed in His sovereign grace toward the church. The church is amazing because of who God is and how He's acted toward her. In his son. And now, in week three, in our time together today, Paul, he gets back to his typical letter writing formula. He's given his greetings to his readers in verses one and two. He launched into an immediate outburst. We can call it an outburst of praise. It's like a guitar solo coming in out of nowhere, right at the beginning of a song, catching you totally by surprise. (laughs) And now, he's returning to his usual pattern of. Uh, thanksgiving and prayer that we find in all the rest of his letters aside from Galatians. He's getting back to verse 1 in the song, so to speak. And in this, he thanks God for his readers, and he prays for them. This morning, I'll be preaching God, or excuse me, Paul's prayer for them, and endeavoring to make it my prayer for us. And so, as we prepare to eavesdrop on what Paul asks of God for the Ephesians, Let's listen in with this question in mind. Here's the question to, to frame the reading of God's word for us this morning. If the church is what God is doing in the world, what makes the church go? That is, what power fuels and motivates the mission of the church to extend God's grace and establish God's peace in the world? Paul's prayer provides us with the answer. So, without further ado, join me in reading God's word and then turning to him in prayer to ask for his help. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all these are god's words would you join me in a prayer for god's help oh father as we come to you this morning we pray for your power that you might empower us to understand, and to receive, and to believe the words that we've heard just now, and that you would work in us according to your great power, that your Son, our Savior, might be magnified, might be exalted, might loom ever larger in our hearts and minds, so that we would see freshly his glory, so that we would share freshly in his joy, so that we would be freshly fueled and motivated and moved to be the church you've called us. We ask that you would do all of this, Lord, for the glory of his name, for the joy of our souls, and for the good of the city to which you've called us to be the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's October, so it's almost Christmas. Oh, no. It's October. So instead of that, it's that time of year again for the monsters, for ghost stories, and for spooky stuff to grip our attention once again. And after Run Club this Thursday, Pastor Kyle and I, we were talking with one of our, our club members and French Park neighbors. And we were down at a Cafe Corazon uh, just over in the neighborhood over there. And he told us that he had just watched the movie, The Night of the Living Dead, the day before at the Frida Theater downtown. And uh, if you're not familiar with this movie, and you go, what are you talking about, Jeff? (laughs) It's the movie, okay? That put zombie movies on the map. Released in 1968 and considered to be a groundbreaking movie in the horror genre, okay? And in the film, here's what happens. Spoiler alerts, but you can probably guess where it's gonna go. In the film, (laughs) radioactive energy from outer space reanimates corpses buried in a local cemetery, okay? And they rise up out of their graves and they come back to life as zombies intent upon eating the living and turning them into the undead. (laughs) A small town in rural Pennsylvania is turned upside down as the dead come back to life and amass a powerful horde of zombies who besiege poor little farmhouses, and convert the living to the living dead, and march across the countryside with a tireless energy they've received from out of this world. (laughs) They're a sort of uh, anti-church, right? (laughs) That spreads living death to their neighbors instead of eternal life, infecting everyone they come into contact with, changing the world. Night of the living dead an (laughs) anti-church. But what animates the church? What makes us move on mission? What fuels our worship? What energizes our life together? Did God set his grace on us and even uh, to save us and even to keep us like we heard, like we celebrated and like we've sang, but leave the, the living out of the Christian life kind of up to us, is the church a a set it and forget it operation of God? Is it something like that he's done his part to save us, and now as the church we do our part to accomplish our mission? Or maybe, does our part constantly depend upon God's part being done in us and through us and for us? I remember years ago uh, before we planted, Pastor Eric Trebetsky from our sending church, Sovereign Grace Church in Orange, he preached on our passage today that we just read on an Easter Sunday. And his point on that Easter Sunday from this text was that it is impossible to be a Christian. It's impossible to be a Christian. That is, apart from God's powerful working, we could never move on our own from death to life. We could never see Christ as he really is or receive the gift of faith in him. On our own, it's impossible to become or remain a Christian. We could never do it if it was all up to us. And so today, let's expand upon this point and consider the claim that it's impossible for us to be the church apart from God as central as the church is in God's work in the world and as marvelous of an institution as God has designed her to be, we can't pass go on being who we are and living out our identity as the church if we don't realize it's actually impossible for us to be the church. That's why Paul prays the way he does in our passage. He understands that there is no institution more significant than the church. He understands that in and through the church, God manifests his glorious grace, and he understands that as the church, listen to this, we are a people who never deserve to be the church, yet here we all are finding ourselves caught up in God's great story, trying to be the people he's called us to be, yet realizing that we can't be God's people apart from God's power. Let me say that again. We can't Be God's people apart from God's power. Church, what fuels us is not explosive space radiation. It's not our own resolve to live up to the high calling of who we're supposed to be. It's not the sum of our best efforts to change the world around us or some mystical and inexplicable power source that we kind of tap into unawares or unconsciously. No. We can't be God's people apart from God's power and his power comes to us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. God's power comes to his people in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, the giver and sustainer of life. We can't be the church apart from his power at work within us. And this is why, after giving thanks for the church in Ephesus, the item at the top of Paul's prayer list for them is that God would give them the Spirit. He prays before all else, God, give them the Spirit. And Puritan theologian John Owen says, praying for the Holy Spirit is the most important work faith has to do in the world. Recognizing this truth, this answer, that apart from God's power, we can't be his people. Praying for the Spirit is the most important work that faith has to do in the world. Why is this? As author Dustin Benge puts it in his awesome book that you should read if you haven't read, The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church, he says this, that without him, that is the Spirit, The church would never have been founded. There would be no church. Godly leaders would never have been called. Believers never would have been added. Gifts not distributed. Services not rendered. Or growth never real. Without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is no church. But with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the church shines forth beautifully. As He makes her. Is glorious as well. The church then, back in the first century, back in Ephesus, and our church now, here in downtown Santa Ana, needs the Spirit to be everything that is bound up in our being, the church. Every aspect of who we are and how we worship and what we do together, for the good of our souls and for the good of our neighbors. everything that is bound up in us being us depends upon the spirit. And so like Paul, we ought to pray, Lord, give us the spirit. And in the rest of our time together today, we'll consider two aspects of the Spirit's work that Paul prays we'd experience in order to be motivated and move on mission, in a way that is faithful in a way that is joyful, and in a way that is truly fruitful. So two points today for the rest of our time together. We need the Spirit because point number one, the Spirit brings all God has done home to our hearts. The Spirit brings all God has done home to our hearts. That's verses 17 through 18. And point number two, we need the Spirit because the Spirit brings resurrection power to bear. Within our life, verses 19 through 23, the Spirit brings resurrection power to bear within our life. And with that, let's get to that first point: the Spirit brings all God has done home to our heart. And catching back up to the beginning of our passage, in verse 15, we pick up with Paul's letter here after the outburst of blessing and celebration that is chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 that we read together last week. After that outburst of praise, Paul, as I mentioned, he returns here to his typical structure and pattern in his letters by giving thanks for the spiritual status of his readers, that is, celebrating God's grace where it's at work among them, and by praying for them. And now, and at the time, Paul's probably writing this letter in his imprisonment, Um, In Rome, it's likely been anywhere from three to five years since he's had direct contact with the church in Ephesus, but as he writes, he's heard reports of the church. He's heard reports of God's work among them, and for this, he gives God thanks. It's been years since he's seen them, but he's heard that God is still active among them. He thanks God that the church in Ephesus is and remains to be church that is filled with faith In the Lord Jesus Christ, which itself is not of their doing, but is a gift of God's grace, and he thanks God that the church is evidencing that faith through her love toward all the saints. He thanks God for this, and then he prays that God would give them all they need in the form of the Spirit to continue to be the church. And so we move into Paul's prayer, and here's what he's asking. Okay, he's asking in verse 17 that. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So, coming off his lofty expression of praise last week and entering into this prayer, scholar Doug Mu helps us understand this, this point of transition here. He says this that Paul's prayer for the readers and for us, by extension, my prayer for us flows naturally out of the opening paragraph of the letter, what we encountered last week. That one long sentence, that one great guitar solo song, it flows naturally out of the opening paragraph of the letter. Moo writes, Having blessed God for their spiritual blessings, Paul now prays that his readers will be able to appreciate. Thanks God for the blessings and his prayer is that, hey, I, I pray, I hope, I ask Lord, they would be able to appreciate all that you've done, all that's true about who they are. And so now in this, Paul is not asking God here to give the Ephesians anything that they don't already have. Instead, he prays that God would freshly and continuously fill them with his spirit. That is the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that, as verse 18 continues, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Here, simply put, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, they would know God better and more deeply understand and appreciate all they have in him. That's the essence of his prayer. This is at the top of his list, that they would know God better and all the more appreciate and all the more lay hold of and grasp at what they have in him. He prays using that, that picture in verse 18, that God would turn up the dimmer switch, right, within the interior of their heart, <laughs> causing the light to shine brighter and grow in greatness, that their clarity and accuracy with which they perceive all God has done, the, the clarity and accuracy of their spiritual sight um, would, would increase. So that, first and foremost, <laughs> they would be able to understand what Paul just wrote to them, right? <laughs> what we spent all last... Sunday talking about and can talk about for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in Paul's great expression of praise, where he thanks God and blesses God for what he purposed to do in eternity past and promises to do for the eternal future and everything that is bound up in that one great story of salvation election, adoption, redemption, sealing with the Spirit, giving an inheritance, uniting all things in heaven and in earth in Christ. Paul says, I'm asking God to help you understand that. I'm asking God to help us lay hold of that. Because these wonders are beyond us. We can't understand them or appreciate them in our own power or according to our own wisdom. We need outside help. And so Paul prays, because of that, that God would give the Spirit to the church. Not that she'd receive through this secret, you know, wisdom, right, in that phrase there, or some new revelation or new knowledge of God, but so that she'd come to more fully understand what had already been revealed to her in the gospel. He's not asking for anything new. He's asking that they would understand and rejoice in that old story, right, that we just sang about, that, that has saved them so. Nothing new. <laughs> but to lay hold more fully and more deeply of all that's true. And this is what's classically referred to as the illumination of the Spirit in in theological writing and in in church teaching. The illumination of the Spirit in the life of the believer, the Spirit at work in us to help us understand God's Word to us. And so Paul is asking the Spirit to come and help the church to know God better. And this prayer is only possible to be answered because. The Spirit has caused us to know God at all, right? Causing them to know God, causing us to know God, shining His light into the darkness of our hearts, that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, like Paul said in Second Corinthians four, verse six. Yet, here's the deal: even as we truly see they and us, we do not fully. And Paul writes to a church that's in progress, to a church that's still growing into maturity. We truly see these things but we don't fully see it. And so Paul's prayer for enlightenment, it presupposes the reality that their sight and our sight spiritually, guess what? It, it can be dull. <laughs> it, it, it can't be and it won't be perfect. And it's probably lacking in some way in us right now as we read this, our apprehension of those things. Paul presupposes that we can fail to see these spiritual realities as they really are. And when our spiritual sight is dull and these realities are, are less real to us than they really are, and we fail to appreciate and to understand and to stand in awe of what God has done, down the road of that are, are, are spiritual lives. They become dry. They become empty. They become thirsty for the power of the Spirit to bring life where there's dryness. Not only this, right, on, on a personal level, but Paul. In his prayer here that the spirit would do this work of enlightening, he presupposes that what's most true about us and most true about our church by extension, isn't always easy to see with our physical life. When we look at our own individual walks with Christ, or we look at our collective life together as a church, we may not always see on the surface, with ease, undeniably apparent evidence that supports the claim that we are a people with an unshakable eternal hope that cannot be taken or lost. An inheritance that is far better than anything this world has to offer or a power within us that, as we'll read, is stronger than sin and death and the devil himself. What's most true about the chief protagonist, the main character in the story that God is writing, that is the church, both universal and locally expressed here at Cross of Grace. What's most true about that main character? doesn't always jump off the page at us. And because this is so, Paul understands that we need a different kind of sight, a spiritual sight to see these amazing realities and grow in our understanding and appreciation of them. Because the the whole point here, the crux of it practically for us, when we have this sight, we're changed by it. We're encouraged by it. We're empowered by it and moved in mission. As a church. And in verses 18 through 19, Paul prays that God would more fully open the eyes of the Ephesians and our eyes today so that we would know three crucial realities. And we'll take the first two right now in this first point, and we'll take the third of these realities in our second point after this. So Paul prays to the Spirit, prays to God to give them the Spirit that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened to know three things. And again, Paul's not asking the Spirit to give them something they don't already have. He's asking that God would give to believers in possession of these three things, um, that they would really come to really know them. You know what I mean? Not just know them, but know them. That they would freshly and consciously experience these realities again and again, so that they would grow in their understanding and appreciation of all God has done for them. You know, it's like the difference between knowing there is a Grand Canyon. We all know it's there. I don't think anybody disputes the reality of that. That'd be a pretty crazy conspiracy theory to believe. Definitely not one I would believe. But we all know there's a Grand Canyon. And you may have even seen a picture of the Grand Canyon. But it's one thing to know there's a Grand Canyon. It's another thing to go to the Grand Canyon. And to know the Grand Canyon as you take out a look. And you see its majesty. And its greatness and your smallness in comparison, and say, Wow, God has made this. The Creator has made this to be His handiwork, to show forth His glory and wisdom and power and might. I know this in a way that I wouldn't know it just by looking at a picture. Or maybe another thing to, to know a, uh, a favorite Christian pastor or teacher that you only interact with on YouTube <laughs> or online, right? You may know John Piper, and we love John Piper, but <laughs> you don't know John Piper but like you know your past. And there's a different kind of knowledge. It's it's deep. It's experiential. It's something that comes home to heart in a different sort of way. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know, would consciously and freshly experience and be changed by these things because they're taken so home to heart. And so three things he wants them to know. First, here's the majesty Paul wants us to take in. Knowing the hope God has called us, knowing the hope that God has called us to, verse 18 says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And coming off of uh, the end part of our last uh, sermon text in verses 13 and 14, particularly, we touched on this last week. But Paul wants them to know, to become increasingly confident, and assured and expectant of the fullness of salvation and all that that means for them, that awaits them and awaits us on the last day. He wants them to to know the hope that they have in the gospel in such a way that they are changed by it. And this is significant that he would want them to know and to lay hold of their hope in Christ as the church because Hopeless was our condition apart from Christ. If you look ahead to chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Here it is. Having no hope and without God the world. Paul says, we all used to be hopeless. And the Spirit comes into our lives and works in our hearts such that the more we grow in our knowledge of Christ and how good he is and how much we need him, the more we see how empty and hopeless and despairing our life apart from him was. How much of a dead end it was to be pursuing anything other than him, trusting in anything else than him, and the the pain and the suffering and the captivity to sin we experienced in that hopeless condition. We all know what it's like to live a life (laughs) that's hopeless, but for those who are in Christ, oh, we know a kind of hope that cannot be taken, that cannot be lost, that is being kept in heaven for us by the Father of glory, the all-powerful and almighty God. Paul says, I want you to know this hope because you used to be a hopeless people, but now you have hope. But lay hold of that hope by faith, and I'm praying the Spirit would help you do it, because the things we hope for, well, guess what? They're not things we fully see right now. (laughs) Right? We, We hope for that which we do not yet see. But the Spirit comes to us, and in our hearts, makes it real, allows us to have a foretaste and an experience of the things that are hoped for in the reality of a new creation, in the reality of a life that's free from the dominion of sin and the deceptions of the evil one and strife and suffering in our relationships. In the church, we come and get a little picture of that, don't we? What God is doing in that new creation now and which he'll perfect forever on that last day. But Paul says, I want you Christians, I want you church to know the hope to which you've been called and live as people in this world that seems otherwise hopeless on the surface to your physical eyes. Live as a people. With hope. Next, Paul wants us to know the riches of our inheritance in Christ. Continuing on with our verse, Paul says, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants us to know these riches so that we would grow in our amazement and appreciation that the Father as we heard last week, has graciously given us all things in Christ. That as we are in Christ, the beloved Son, we become sons of God in him and receive everything the Father has promised and pledged to him. Not the least, his unreserved and unrestrained fatherly love and for us, his pleasure over us, his commitment to us. We come to receive an inheritance. And Paul says, I want you to know that I want you to lay hold of that inheritance because you realize, back to chapter 2 here, that once you were alienated from God, as we just read. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope of a good future. (laughs) Nothing was promised to you apart from Christ. Having no hope from without God in the world, he says, you were outsiders to God's family. Had no share in his love. And care, in providential working of all things for your good. That was our status apart from Christ. Earlier on in chapter 2, we hear that far from being children of God, we were what? Children of wrath. Who were storing up wrath in judgment for that day of judgment, like the rest of mankind. The only inheritance we had before Christ (laughs) was judgment. That was the future we were expecting. That is where our life was headed. But now in Christ, we have a status of son, which means we have a future and a hope and the end of our story is not judgment, but it's life, life eternal in the presence and place of God. That is the inheritance we have. And so whatever we now as the church, whatever we we lack, whatever we lose for the sake of Christ, whatever we forsake that the world offers to us and say, no, I will turn away, I will repent, I will give that up because Christ is better. Whatever we don't have by means of worldly inheritance, oh, we have something far better and far more lasting in Christ. And so Paul says, I want you guys to lay hold to know that you are heirs in him. and knowing that you have a sure hope, knowing that you have a glorious inheritance I want you to be made all the more confident. I want you to be all the more moved and motivated to be who you are in this world, knowing that all that you have become. And so this morning, if you're here and you're listening to this and you might be feeling spiritually dull, the, the, the eyes of your heart right, are, are dull, they're, they're dim, it's hard to see these things, or you're experiencing spiritual dryness. It could be because you've set your heart upon or you've become caught up with or distracted by other reality other things that don't concern the fact that you have an eternal part in God's story that you are his son or daughter that you have a status that makes all this to be the most true thing about you and your identity and your calling and what your life and story is all about you might have other things that seem more real to you right now that you're more prone to, to look to to define yourself that you're more prone to look at and, you know, <laughs> apprise how much hope you can have in this world <laughs> because you're basing those things off of the things you see, the things that are more pressing in, things that are more apparent, the cares and the worries of life. And you might be looking out of that and being caught up in them. Here's the question that Paul wants us to ask. What's most real to you about who you are and where your life is? What's most real to you? about who you are and how you see yourself, even if others don't see you that way, and where your life is headed, even if it doesn't always seem like we're on a one-way upward trajectory toward eternal blessing, because life is filled with confusion and with suffering and with disappointment, and it's not easy to be God's church in the world. What's most real to And here's the encouragement, that as Paul does, that we would pray for the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls the Spirit of Truth, whom he said would come and lead us and guide us into all truth, that we would pray that he would come and he would teach us the truth (laughs) of what God has done and of who we are in Christ and of all that our life in him means now and forever. This morning, if you're feeling spiritually dull or spiritually dry, take a page out of Paul's book and pray for the spirit to come and, and refresh you and fill your heart and soul with living waters as you're reminded of all that is most true about who you are. Hmm. Would the Spirit continue to bring home to our hearts all that God has done for us in Christ? And with that, emphatically here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the Spirit would bring home to our hearts all God has achieved in the resurrection of Christ. To bring home to our hearts all that he's done for us and with that, chiefly, it is an emphasis in this passage, what God has done for us in Christ (laughs) has been achieved in the resurrection of Christ. And this brings us to our second point, that we need the Spirit because the Spirit brings resurrection power to bear within our life. And so this is the third of the three realities that Paul wants us to see and know. He wants us to have eyes that are wide open and growing in clarity and focus on the hope we have, the inheritance that is ours, and the great power of God that he works. And the resurrection. Of Paul wants us to, as it says in verse 19, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And, side note, there's no qualifier or distinction there, it's toward us, all of us, all y'all who believe meaning that this power and this experience of the Spirit is not something that's reserved for like special Christians. There's not, you know, regular Christians and then Spirit-filled Christians or these special groups, and only some of you might be able to actually receive this. If you're believing any of that, that's not what Paul's teaching here. He's saying this power is for all you who believe. Don't count yourself out of God's mighty working in Christ toward you by his Spirit. This is for all you who believe. And what's the power? What is the power? The power is this, this immeasurable power. <laughs> how can we, well, how can we measure it? How can we know it? What can we compare it to? Help us understand, Paul. What is this immeasurable power that God intends to work toward us, the church? Well, Paul tells us that the power God intends for His people to experience is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Verse twenty. Let's start reading in 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? And what is that great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly. After he was crucified for our sin, in our place and on our behalf, to take the wrath that we deserve, to do battle with the evil one, to face death, which is the wage of sin that we all are heading to and deserve for our sin head on. After all this was done upon the cross, what did God do? But raised him from the dead to show that it was finished. It was complete. He had done what needed to be be done so that those who were separated from him may no more be separate from him. The great might that God worked in Christ was what he did and what he worked by his spirit to bring about the victorious resurrection of his son. Romans 8.11 says this, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The point here is that the same spirit who raised the son now lives in us. And he energizes our life together as a church with dead raising, sin conquering, Satan defeating power. That's what God wants his church, that's what he wants us to experience in our life together. This kind of power. The same power he worked when he raised Christ from the dead. The spirit. The spirit that brought us to life, initially in Christ, when he opened our eyes to see him in the gospel and we believe, that same spirit who brought us to life, he empowers us to live the Christian life. That's what we're grabbing hold of here as the church, as we live this life together. And the Christian life, (laughs) thinking about it this week, is a life for which resurrection power, if we're living it the way I think we're supposed to, (laughs) is constantly needed. What do I mean? Because in our own strength, And according to the power and the perception of the the natural person, right? Thinking and loving and desiring and acting apart from God's power and God's wisdom. I don't know about you, but everything about the Christian life, it feels like, it looks like, it tastes like death. Think about it. (laughs) The Christian life is a journey of self-denial compared to the literal death of taking up one's cross and following after Christ. That's the life of the church together, carrying the cross and denying ourselves. To be a Christian is to live out our new life in Christ by continuously putting to death the old sin in which we once walked and lived and were held in captivity. The Christian life is about putting to death sin and applying that sin-conquering power of the Spirit in and again, and again, as we walk by him, and not according to our flesh. To be a Christian is to forgive others when they have wronged us, and choose love over anger, and bitterness, and grudges, and division, which we all know can be pretty appealing, can appeal to our pride, can appeal to our sense of justice, can appeal to us, and seem much more desirable than choosing to allow love to cover a multitude of sins and offenses, to choose to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us, as Paul will tell us later in Ephesians 4. To choose love, oh man, can feel like choosing death, like choosing a, a, a choice against ourselves and what we really want for the sake of what God has told us is good and right and bringing glory to him and working good out among us. To be a Christian is to live in an embattled world, That is hostile to everything we hold most dear. Jim Donahue said it a couple weeks ago when he was with us, but it really is the case that everything we believe, more or less, is offensive to the world around us who doesn't believe the things we believe. That Christ would be the Lord in the only way, and that He would be able to set the limits and parameters for what it looks like to be a human in this world and to flourish according to His standards. And the list goes on. Everything we believe is offensive, and claiming Christ as Lord is placing us in a position in which nothing else can be Lord. And we're placed into a, a struggle, a battle, in which other, others who claim that throne, other ideas, other religions, other ways of viewing the world, come into conflict with our core confession, right? We live in an embattled world. And being a Christian is being called to stand firm in that embattled world, even in the midst of spiritual warfare like Paul talks about here in chapter one and throughout the rest of Ephesians, standing firm in the midst of spiritual warfare and taking the message of the gospel to those who naturally in themselves, guess what? Don't want it, can't understand it, and may mock, reject, mistreat, or retaliate against us for sharing Christ with them. This is the life into which we've been called as Christians. It's self-denying, crucifying, choosing against the things we really want sometimes when we're angry and prideful and we want to do our own thing. (laughs) And all of that is hard. All of that requires resurrection power, right? To get us over the hump, to get us to the other end of that cross-carrying self-denial, into the experience that God intends for us to have as a people who live out his peace in the world. Amen? We need resurrection power to do anything in the Christian life, things great and small. And so the application for us, being convinced of this, is that we would constantly, right, and consciously depend upon the power of the Spirit and all that we do. as we worship God, as we love one another, and all that that means, live the, Christ- the Christian life and welcome our neighbors into the joy that we have in Christ. We need the Spirit. We need His help. We need to be seeing the things He wants us to see so that we would be motivated to give ourselves to all that. In a way that would bring God glory, that would bring us joy, that would bear fruit in our lives together. We need the Spirit to do any and all of that. As Wayne Grudem says, all our ministry, whatever form it may take, is to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we do ought to be done in a constant, conscious dependence upon the Spirit, and how easy it is for us to go through even the good motions of the Christian life without that constant dependence, but we need to. We need to rely on his power and not our own. And so we respond to this by asking God to continuously fill us with his spirit so that we might be the church he's called us to be. And we who have the spirit as the seal of our salvation and the down payment of our inheritance, we must ask that he continuously fill us up and fuel our lives. As Grudem continues here, he says, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself. And it therefore will result in feeling what God feels, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge which God himself. This is what it means to be filled with spirit. And because this is all that it means, it's critically important that we ask God, give us, the spirit. give us the Spirit. As Owen said earlier, this is the most important work of faith. As he carries on now, he tells us this to encourage us, John Owen. He says, we should pray daily for the Holy Spirit from the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Like Paul has just done here. He says, this is the daily work of believers. They look upon and by faith consider the Holy Spirit as the one promised and as the one In this promise, they know, lies all their grace, peace, mercy, joy, and hope. For by him as the one promised, and by him alone are these things communicated to believers. If, therefore, our living to the glory of God or the joy of such life is important to us, and it is, the joy of such life and our living for the glory of God is important to us, then we are to ask, for him from the Father, as children ask their parents. For the- we are to ask him for the Spirit, as children ask their parents for their daily bread, because as we do, and as we ask for the Spirit, and we seek to, to work and to live in the strength that he supplies, guess what? He receives the glory. We acknowledge a power that is not our own, and the church is not seen as the people who are powerful. No, 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 but the Savior, the head of the church, whom the Spirit comes into our hearts and in our lives together to reveal, to make known, to magnify Jesus Christ, he is seen as glorious and wonderful and the one who's really running the show because he is. So when we ask for the Spirit to come and empower us, the upshot of this is that Christ is exalted in us. And this is where we'll, we'll, we'll land today and close as we read the final verses of our passage together. Paul says that we ought to ask for the Spirit because the Spirit who raised Christ and seated him on high is working to glorify Christ in the church. Read with me verse 20 and following. Paul writes that he wants us to know the great power of God, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place, from which he reigned. Verse 21, reigning far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That is, not just earthly powers and institutions and things that are seen, but spiritual and angelic and demonic and the powers that (laughs) also elude our physical sight. He says, Christ is reigning over any power you could think of, any power you could be afraid of, any power you could conceive of. Christ has been set above them all. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, whoever might come and try to lay claim, to the throne and rival him but also in the one to come this Christ who has been raised by the spirit to this exalted position shall never be the throne he shall never find a challenger he cannot best his claims will never be invalidated the church then will never be irrelevant the church will never fail to endure and to carry on because Christ is the name of all names in this age and the age to come you know, back then in Ephesus, people were worshiping Artemis, right? Is anybody worshiping Artemis now? Not, not really. I don't think too many. But Christ, he still reigns. And whenever new challenger comes, Christ, he's the powerful one. He is seated on the throne and no one can topple him. And guess what? The one who is the most powerful. The name above all names. The Lord of all lords. Paul says this about him for us. He says, that God has put all things under his feet, his Christ's feet. He reigns over them all. And he gave him as head the authority over all things. Look at verse 22. To the church. Christ rules over the entire universe. The whole cosmos of things seen and unseen to, that is for the sake of us, the church. He rules over everything for our good. The powerful one, the power of powers has backed us and nothing else. No institution, no uh, means of changing the world, right? He's backed us as ordinary and unimpressive and uh, weak as we may feel and are. He's put himself behind and he's working in us and we are his body as Paul writes in verse 23. The fullness of him all, And so, church, would we be encouraged that the king of the universe is the leader of our church? Would we be made confident by this that the church, because Christ has been seated since then and will be seated forever on that throne, will never become irrelevant? That no claims will come up in the world or in our culture that we'll ever have to fear that we can't speak to with the gospel? Christ will never be proven to be anything other than the Lord. Amen? And this is good news for us, but it carries a a wrinkle of bad news in it as well. If Christ is raised above, as Doug Moose says, every spiritual being that you can worry about or even imagine, and nothing is outside of his universal fear of lordship, that means that your life too is included in that. If this is true about Jesus, if he really has been raised up above all powers and all authorities, things seen and unseen. That means he's also been raised up as Lord over your life, whether you like it, whether you acknowledge it, whether you want it to be true or not. And the reality of who He is and what God has done in him by the power of the Spirit, it lays a claim upon us all. to acknowledge Him as the Lord, and to enter into the joy of His kingdom and of His people, or to be apart from Him, and to experience His judgment, to experience His judgment, to experience what happens when you reject the most powerful. In the universe. And so the good news is that if this is your king, he's for you and nothing can be against you. The bad news is that he is not your king. There's no hope in anything else to spare you, to shield you, to protect you from his lordship and claims. And so here's the appeal today. If you don't yet know him, you haven't yet trusted him, you don't acknowledge him as your lord, do so today. Trust in him today. Because the truth about who he is leaves no neutral approach. for all the rest of us, Cross of Grace Church, would we be freshly convinced that we can't be the church apart from God's power, but respond to this word, thanking God that we have that power, that we have that spirit. And as we sang earlier, we do not walk alone, but we have the spirit as we all together press on, love one another, and extend the joy of Jesus to our neighbors. We have his spirit to lead us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to walk alone, but that you have given us your spirit that we might continue to progress together in our understanding and appreciation of all you've accomplished in your son, of all you've laid up before us, of all the power that's to be experienced by us. Though we can so often feel weak and powerless and unqualified to do the things you've called us to do, we take heart that in your spirit, we have all we need. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that your son might be glorified in us for our joy, for your glory, and for our neighbor's We ask and pray in his name. Amen.